You're listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, everybody, welcome to the show. I'm Bart Campolo, the former humanist chaplain at the University of Southern California and the host of this program. And I've got a great conversation lined up for you today um, between me and Jason Callahan, who I will introduce to you in a moment and you'll love him. I love him. He's lovable. But before we get to that conversation, I probably need to explain where that formerly in my title comes from all of a sudden. And the truth of the matter is, is that for the past three years, I've been serving as a full-time volunteer at the University of Southern California here in Los Angeles. And, uh, and it's been wonderful. I've worked with the most amazing students. We've developed this incredible secular student fellowship at USC that is one of the most you know, just joyful humanist communities I've ever even heard of. Um, and I've loved it. I've just loved being there. And for a long time, I tried to land a paying job on campus so that I could keep at it. And, uh, and then when that didn't seem to be working out, my students, they campaigned, they put up a big online petition for the school to somehow officialize my chaplaincy and connect us to like-minded Trojan donors that could raise an endowment and make it a, a cool and permanent thing. And, uh, and, 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 and I still think that's going to happen someday. I still think at some point a bunch of secular humanist Trojans are going to create a, a permanent humanist chaplaincy there. But in the end, the university didn't hire me um, for any job. And then it became really clear that establishing that chaplaincy was going to take longer than Marty and I could afford to wait. And so over this summer, we have agonizingly realized we have no choice but to head for home, which means to head for Cincinnati. Um, and that's what we're going to do. And, and if you want to know more about the move to Cincinnati or what we're going to do there, I mean, the, the main thing you need to know is we're still going to do the podcast there. And I'm still going to counsel and coach people online from there. And BartCampola.org and all the messaging and all the stuff we're working on is still going to happen from there. And so... You know, if you're a podcast listener, it's not going to change your life very much. Um, if you're me, you're packing up a lot of boxes. It's going to change your life a lot. And, uh, and the truth of the matter is, is as sad as I am about sort of not making the work at USC sustainable and not establishing it the way I wanted to. I mean, because I mean, it's wonderful work. I mean, the, the group is sustainable and the student, the secular student fellowship is going to go on. And I think it's going to grow because we've got great student leaders this year, especially. Um, but eventually they're going to need another chaplain. And eventually I hope that happens. And I hope it actually happens in time for one of my former students to come back and become that humanist chaplain. But in the meantime... The weird thing is, is when Marty and I figured out that we were going to go back to Ohio, as sad as we were about leaving here, we got pretty excited about being back in Cincinnati because in Cincinnati, we got a lot of old friends and we know our way around and it's a smaller city and it doesn't have this kind of crazy traffic. And best of all, we can actually afford to buy a house there and fix it up into a home that we can share with people and hopefully put it in a neighborhood where, yeah, I mean, not hopefully we will, we'll, we'll buy a house in a neighborhood where the real estate is cheap and available so that we'll be able to say to humanists all over the place, Hey, if you're looking for that community that we keep talking about, come to Cincinnati, we're, we're building it there and we'll live around each other and we'll support each other and we'll be part of each other's lives. And we'll reach out to needy people together because it's fun to, to change people's lives for the better. And we'll cultivate a sense of gratitude and a wonder together. And, uh, and, and it'll be great. And it'll be great. And so like, as you probably have figured out, as much as, as much as I can, I, I just want to make the most of every opportunity. And so you know, the truth is, is that it's, 
if, if I had been able to get that job and stay at USC, I'd be thrilled and I'd be talking about like, that's great. But I'm really excited about going home too. And uh, it's going to be hard to leave my kids here in LA, but my kids are sort of like, listen, we don't feel, we're, we're not going to feel good about you guys until you have a home. Cause that's kind of your thing is hosting people and, 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 and bringing people into the house uh, to stay sometimes when they need a place and, and creating dinners and creating stuff for people. And, and we, and we want you to have that. And so, so, you know, and, and the other thing is like, gosh, the cost of real estate's there such that we'll be able to afford to come back here and visit pretty much as often as we want, which is a good thing. Cause we're going to want to come back here and see the people we love here. But uh, in the meantime, yeah, we're getting ready. We're, we're moving. We'll, we'll show up in Cincinnati sometime in the early part of September. And uh, Marty's job, she was working at this homeless uh, outreach place in Pasadena called Friends Indeed. And she's so wonderful at what she does that they, that they are keeping her on as a kind of remote employee to continue managing a bunch of operations and doing a bunch of writing for them. And so she's going to have her job and I'm going to have my, my gig still going. And so we'll be okay. Um, actually we'll be a lot more okay when our, uh, when our cost of living comes way down. And so, yeah, that's what's happening. That's what's happening. And, um, gosh, I'll probably talk more about it another time but in the meantime since we're talking about chaplaincies that we're trying to get established one of my chaplaincy heroes is jason callahan who is the first and i mean we'll talk we talked about this in in the conversation he's the first actually registered certified board certified nationally recognized humanist chaplain in the country um and he works as the chaplain of palliative care at the Virginia Commonwealth University Massey Cancer Center. And so all day long, Jason is in and out of hospital rooms trying to help people cope with the realities of life and death um, from a genuinely and beautifully humanist perspective. And, uh, and he and I, we've been talking to each other for a while now. He really is one of my heroes, not just because he's a cool chaplain, but because he's an awesome black man in a humanist movement that doesn't have a lot of high profile black leaders yet. And he's just, uh, he's just a, a person who I think has, is kind of ahead of the curve in figuring it out figuring out what it means to make meaning on the other side of faith. And so, yeah, so listen, I'm not going to keep singing his praises. You're going to like him. Here it goes. Here's me and Jason Callahan cutting it up on Humanize Me. Are you, are you literally the guy who walks in the door of the hospital, like walks in the hospital room when the person's like dying of cancer and talks to their family and them? As a matter of fact, that is exactly what I do. Sometimes, um, because I work in palliative care, a lot of my patients are oncology patients. And when they get that bad news, I'm not necessarily the one to deliver it to them, but I'm usually one of the first responders, you know, because kind of like what you said about working with students, you know, you try to help them, you know, work through some things and get along and just grow. At the same time, in those moments, that's what I'm trying to do. It's just a different environment. You would be surprised how the family dynamics, you know, completely affect how some Somebody responds to just the uh, the physical presence of someone else, you know, um, and it's very hard for people. But yeah, I go in there. That's what I do. I mean, like I've been in that room a lot of times, mm -hmm. but it was always somebody that I knew outside in the real world, and then their life puts them in that hospital room, and then I come because I'm like I'm that pastoral guy that comes to try right. to like make the. But but for you, most of the people that you work with. You haven't met them until they're in trouble, right? Right. And, 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 and when you say palliative care, like what is that? So palliative care, essentially, um, a lot of people confuse it with hospice. And quite often, it's, it serves as a bridge to hospice. But it's not only dealing with end-of-life issues. A lot of times, patients who come into the hospital, and they don't have a life-limiting illness, but they have something that's creating um, significant suffering where they can't function in certain ways, whether it's pain, um, uh, discomfort in general. Palliative care will come in there in order to mask those symptoms so that um, comfort and 
and peace and ultimately the relief of anxiety and burdens on the patients of their families can actually happen. Um, so it serves a dual role. A lot of times, unfortunately, people can't get out of the hospital, so palliative care ends up being the one to deal with the deaths and the end-of-life stuff because people are suffering at that time. But when we can, we try to meet people as early on because the reality is coming into a hospital, you know, people struggle with that in general. So we try to provide that care ongoing, no matter who the patients are or what their illnesses are. So you, so, I mean, take me through it. Like your, like your day, like you walk into the hospital, Mm -hmm. do you go to your office? Yeah, I, I do go to my office on occasion, uh, but most of my work's done at the bedside or working in uh, conjunction with uh, interdisciplinary teams. And those teams consist of the doctors, the nurses, speech therapists, nutritionists, social workers, chaplains. Right, but who, uh, who, who, who calls you? Like, like, you're, like beginning of the day, like, mm-hmm. how do you know what room to walk into? Ah, that's a good question. I never know which room I'm going to walk into until I actually get there. Sometimes when I get there, there's already a crisis going on and everything's jumping. You have to be acutely aware of that. And if that's happening, I'll just go ahead and go in there. I won't even do my routine. But uh, what we try to do is community communicate as a team about what's going on with all of the patients. And from there, we identify no, no, you know, but wait, some wait, of the... But mm-hmm. that's too vague for me. Like, like I'm, I'm saying, do you walk up to the nurse's station and say... What's going on? Or does yeah. is there? A, do you get an email that says these are the five people that are in bad shape? Like, how do you find out what's going on? Well, that's exactly what I was talking about. We find out from the team when we're actually discussing um, so what's going on with te- each and every patient. There's a team meeting. Like, does everybody get together in one room and say, like, let's talk about what all these people we're trying to take care of? Absolutely, it happens every single day, first thing in the morning. Really, doctors, yes. nurses. Doctors, nurses, everybody you can think of meets. Um, And the the reality is, before I go to that meeting, I actually meet with the chaplains in the morning to find out what happened overnight so that all the chaplains in the hospital are on the same page. Okay, so everybody, chaplains get together and say, this is what we're dealing with. And then then you, like, walk into that meeting. You're representing the chaplains. Mm -hmm. Or, or, Or maybe there's more than one chaplain coming in that meeting with you. Yeah, and the chaplains meeting is ex- exclusively chaplains, and that's right. why we prepare before we go to our, our specialties and then go to that meeting to prepare. Okay, so the chaplains, you're the chaplain of palliative, but there might be mm-hmm. another chaplain who deals with another area of the hospital? Precisely. We, okay. we deal with what's called service lines, and these service lines can, can be like trauma, oncology, women's health stuff, psychology, but we all have a service line that we cover because a lot of times specific things kind of go together. So you just work in that realm. Right, right, right. So then you walk into the palliative care meeting and, mm-hmm. and how many beds are there in the palliative care unit? Well, our unit is a, a small inpatient unit. There are 11 beds on that floor. We, uh, we have a three rooms that are semi-private so that people can have roommates. And then on the other side, we have five rooms that are, are just solo rooms. Okay. So, so theoretically there might be five, 10, 11 people there that y'all are taking care of at any given time. Nope. Actually, that number falls far short. In addition to having that unit where we only have the 11 beds, we also see patients all over the hospital because people start becoming palliative patients on different units um, because those are the places where the bad news happens. So we have to go there and meet those patients and help them transition to whatever they decide uh, after that we have what's called goals of care meetings. Okay. So, so, so after they found out, like, this is my diagnosis and it's going to hurt. Then we, we try to figure out like, okay, what are we going to do about the hurt part? Exactly. Okay. So then y'all get together and you talk about not even 11 people. You might talk about 20 people or what, however many. And, and y'all, you talk about that. Mm-hmm. And then at some point do they say, well, 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 Jason, this is, this is the one that we need you to, like, I need you to talk to this one. Or do you, do you decide who to go talk to? Or do people call you and say, man, you need to go talk to these people? I usually decide because chaplains have specific training and we could pick up on a lot of things that uh, some other disciplines won't. But a lot of the times the doctors will have the initial meetings. And if they hear something in that meeting, when they first meet the patients and say, hey, this is someone who Jason needs to go see immediately, they'll let me know and I'll prioritize them. Okay. And then when you go, you just walk right in that room and you're like, 
there is no God. This life is the only one you have. It's over. I'm, I'm here to tell you the truth. Um, I've got a Richard Dawkins book for you. I'm going to leave it on the bedside and I'm leaving. That's not what happens, is it? That has not happened one single time. <laughs> so, 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 I mean, what does happen? Like, like, cause I mean, again, like I've been in that room. Um, people are really like, like sometimes you walk in and it's just a patient, right? Sometimes, right. Are most people, do most people have somebody? You know, it, it depends. I'd say it's probably split 50, 50. We try to only meet with people initially when they have someone else, because that moment is really hard to take by yourself. So when we schedule the meeting, we intentionally make sure that the patients have somebody from their family or whoever's closest to them uh, to be there. Cause someone inevitably is going to have to care for that patient. You mean like once they go home? Precisely. And it's it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Do most of them go home? You know, a lot of people would like to go home, but the reality is a lot of patients end up going to facilities or they'll end up dying in the hospital. That's not the goal of healthcare. We want them to be in a more uh, comfortable environment, and usually home is that. But the way that people are prepared now, um, it's just... It's just really hard to do that unless you have the resources. Yeah, it's weird. I had this woman that I talked to uh, about a year ago. She had written this book called The Good Death. And <clears> she, <throat> she, after 10 years of working as a hospice worker, but what got her into hospice work was is that her own father was dying of cancer. And he had this whole outline of how he wanted to die at home and how it was all going to be. Mm-hmm. And they could not make it happen. It just, right. it, it just and, and he just died in a way he didn't like, in a place he didn't like. And she was like, why is it? You know, we have a weird culture where, mm-hmm. where because people deny that there's any death going to happen at all, that people have really shitty deaths. I mean, it's, it's a hard thing to talk about. So, so, uh, so the people that you're meeting, like many of them, if not most of them, have gotten a really bad diagnosis. <laughs> Yeah, I'd say about one hundred percent of them. Okay, like uh, people don't people don't die of old age anymore. That's we're out of that era. It's always something, and unless you're medically trained, you really don't understand what that thing is. So generally, it's all terrible news. Yeah, I'm here to tell you how you're going to die. Exactly. And so when they find that out, like somebody's just found out, like this is how you're going to die. And what do you do? What, what do you do in the aftermath of that moment of truth? Now, that's a really good question, because when I go into the rooms, I have no idea what I'm going to do. Um, each case is really individual. And the thing is, you have to be able to go into a room and just be present, you know, because if, if you're not, if you have an agenda, you're not going to be able to receive the person who is is the primary point of emphasis in that room. Um, so what I try to do is just listen to them first. A lot of people, you know, they just want to get their affairs in order, you know, because when you struggle with the illness long term, a lot of times you're already thinking some things and, and you're formulating. It's just sharing that with your family that you have to get to. So I try to listen to the patients first and foremost, to just to see where they are. Now, if they're getting that news and say they're, they're looking for a miracle, you know, I'm going to help them identify where that hope is. I understand that the course of illness sometimes looks like a miracle. And quite frankly, that is in that moment. But what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? Looks like a miracle. Like you mean like when they get that news, the first thing that they're looking for is there must be some way out of this. A lot of times they are. I mean, it's denial is a very powerful thing. Um, And if you're if you're specifically religious, you know, you you look for faith somewhere. If you have faith in God, um, you know, that's one thing that you will hold on to in those times. But the reality from a medical perspective is that it's just not going to happen. So you try to live in that space and, and bridge the gap between the medical perspective and where they have faith. Yeah. Yeah. And so do they ask you to have faith with them? Like, do, do you know, because like you're in Virginia, I'm guessing mm-hmm. like that's kind of Bible belty, right? Richmond. Right. So I'm guessing that a significant number of the patients that you walk in on, 
are people that believe in supernatural forces. They believe in a God who can intervene. They, they, they believe in miracles. Um, do they want you to believe in miracles? Some of them do. A lot of them do. Uh, that's a conversation that we have, especially if there's some people that don't have the traditional support networks. And when you come into the hospital, they, the hospital workers end up becoming your family. And it's, it's one thing where you understand the need to be a part of a community. And, and when you're isolated at that time, you want someone to believe the same things you do, because if that person believes it and can articulate it to you, that can alleviate some of the burden on you. Yeah. Now, but, th- th- but sometimes people don't care. You know, sometimes people are just saying, hey, I don't care what it is. I'm just glad that you are here with right, me. Just be present. But like, you right. know, the ones it's funny because like I've had a few situations since I left faith or lost faith where mm-hmm. people have in a, in, a, in a moment sort of been like, can you just go there with me? You know, can will you pray for me? Will you pray with me um, to God? And what was funny is like, I find that in these moments I'm entirely willing to do so. Like, like, and, and, and some of my secular friends is like, how can you do that? You're selling out. You're, you're not standing. And I'm like, you know what? In that moment, like it doesn't matter. Like I'm not here to win somebody over to the truth. It like all I am here to do is to comfort somebody in the way that they can be comforted. Is it, it, like, do you feel any, like, I, I guess I don't see, like, may, maybe one of the best things for me about becoming secular was that I lost my absolute commitment to truth. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if a lie will comfort and not harm, and like, yeah, I, you, know, you know, and I know that there are people that are like, a lie always harms, it undermines our overall, you know. I'm just saying, like, in that moment, if somebody needs me to pray with them, Aunt Mary, yes, I will pray with you. Do, I mean, do you pray with people? Do you do you, do you do that stuff? I absolutely do. You know, how many people are there in the world? There's like seven billion something people, right? Right. A really good chaplain will learn how to speak seven billion different languages. Okay, and if prayer is the language that that person needs in order to be comforted, then that's what you use. You know, the the reality for me is this. You know, I don't believe in the God. I don't believe in the supernatural. Okay, so to me. These are words, okay? These are very powerful words. I'm not threatened by religion, you okay? I work with religion and I embrace other people's faiths for them, okay? So prayer can absolutely be used because that's where their faith is. That can relieve some anxieties on them. So why wouldn't you do it? Yeah, I heard somebody talk about code switching. Right. And and they were saying like a good chaplain is a good code switcher who, who whatever you're speaking— I'm going to find a way to to speak to you in that language. My values, I will communicate my values. And this guy was saying like, look, if, if you want to talk about hatred and revenge, mm-hmm. I'm going to be against that. Like, I'm not going to go against my values, but I will talk about love and justice and compassion and wonder in whatever language, like whatever story, whatever narrative you're using to communicate those values. Like, so, so they're like, I'll stay true to my values. I'm not going to walk in there and, and I'm going to try to move you to a place of comfort or a place of peace or a place of, of forgiveness. I'm not like, I I know what's good for human beings, but they're like, I'll use any code I needed to use to get you there. Mm. You, You know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, my very specific practice for prayer that I use, I always invite the, the patient, the family, whoever's in the room to use their words, because chaplains, we need to empower the the people that are in the supportive community to do that. And a lot of times it's their words that become the prayer. So I can get let off the hook a little bit. Right. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, so do they, so a person's gotten this bad news and, and they're, they're in there with their family and they're processing it. How, like, do they want you in there? I, I mean, like, like I can imagine, like, with my family, a lot of, a lot of heavy-duty processors. If some stranger walked in the room, they would go like, hey, like, we got this here. We know how to talk, you know. But I can imagine, you know, but, but I've walked into a room where people sort of looked at me and go like, we don't know what we're doing here. Can you help us out? How often, like, how often do people ask you to help them out in processing this stuff? So... 
in the context of us being in Richmond and the fact that it is a little more religious, that chaplain badge of mine gives me a certain level of authority that as soon as I enter the room, they're like, this is the guy that we need. So regardless of whether they know what I believe or not, they're like, this is our guy. So it never becomes an issue. But sometimes people already have something in place where they don't want you in there because that chaplain badge also means this is the deliverer of bad news. Maybe they saw it on a TV show or had a previous experience with the chaplain where they're like, this always means bad stuff. So they're the ones that are pretty much like, nah, we got this. We don't need you. Mm -hmm. Now, how about, how about, I mean, being a black man in Richmond, like, are Mm -hmm. you walking in mostly on black patients? Are you walking in on mostly white? Like, like does race enter into it? Now, race doesn't enter into it. In our hospital, it's a, it's a secular hospital, so you get the chaplain that you get. But the reality is that specific hospital, you know, 50 years ago, or in the 60s and everything, it was, it was segregated. It was actually two hospitals. So a lot of people um, are still alive that were patients during segregation. So they have the mind frame um, that this black chaplain shouldn't be in here or um, this white chaplain shouldn't be in here. And so, so it, it does enter into an issue or it doesn't like it does sometimes can you, you can feel it. You're like, oh, they're not as comfortable with me. Absolutely. You know, and to be honest with you, it it tends to be along more religious lines um, because the nature of these issues, you need something special faith specific and it's hard to just accept some stranger into your room uh when they come in at these times but unless you i mean you can take the time to build relationships with them and sometimes that'll alleviate the burdens because once again you kind of get the chaplain that you get now here's the freaky thing like and the freaky thing is is that you and i both know lots of hospital chaplains who don't believe in god you know, that, that, that have come to the place where they're like, you know, I've been in these hospitals. I've looked, I've waited for the miracles. The miracles seldom come. They come about as often as they would come by random chance. Right. Um, but most these, like, but, but on paper, that guy's still the Presbyterian chaplain or the Baptist chaplain or she's the Episcopalian chaplain or, or the Jewish chaplain. If, am I right in thinking that you are the first certified, like, on the name tag hospital chaplain that comes in like as a as a humanist so i'm the first nationally board certified chaplain by the association of professional chaplains that is endorsed by the humanist society so i went through the entire process as a humanist and they certified me so yeah i'm the first was that a difficult deal? Was that like, were you like fighting through, you know, the, 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 the ignorance and, and discrimination at every corner? Or was it like nobody had ever thought to do it before? You know, the crazy thing is, if people were putting up barriers or, or were trying to oppose what I was doing, I didn't really feel it. Because my personality, I'm, I'm the type of guy where you know pretty much straight out the gate that I'm I'm authentic. I'm actually doing this thing and you can't tell the difference between me and another chaplain unless you actually have a conversation with me about these specific things. Um and honestly, I think kind of how we talked about how a lot of chaplains are kind of humanist leaning anyway. I think once it got to that level, people recognized in me um that I was a chaplain and some of the humanist appeal I think rubbed off on them and they said you know now's the time so I think it was a bit of timing but also um my personality and and people being ready for this to happen yeah I mean and you're not like you're not a a, a fire throwing flame breathing like angry like like you you're really not pushing nah. some agenda here are you nah there's there's no agenda I'm just trying to you know, be there for people. Now, now, I, I've met like last few weeks. I keep coming across these pastors, ex-pastors, who miss being in ministry. And some of them will say, "Like I was thinking about chaplaincy," and that's when I call you and say, "Like, will you talk to them? Like, is it is it realistic? Like, is it a long and difficult and painful process to go from being a human being to being?" A, a, an actual like I can get a job in a hospital chaplain what is what's, what, what do you got to do so this process is it's kind of grueling uh, you know I say 
I try to warn people all the time. There are a lot of barriers to entry to becoming a a professional chaplain, and I, I say professional chaplain because that is that's inclusive of the board certification. Um, but it's hard to do that because you have to have a theological education. You have to go to seminary, get a master's of divinity or some master's level um, degree in order to enter a CPE program. Um, and CPE is clinical pastoral education. And that's the big thing that all chaplains have to do. Um, ultimately, it, it amounts to about, um, they say, 2,000 hours of professional work in an institution become before you can even become board certified. And in addition to that, you have to be endorsed by some faith group. And as you can see for humanists, that's a struggle because if they're not involved in a faith group, then who's going to endorse them? Um, ultimately, the process takes at least six years because you're looking at three years of seminary, then another three years of specific chaplain training. So even a guy like me, who's been in ministry for 30 years. Like, I would need to go get that seminary degree. In order to become board certified? Yeah, you'd have to go get the seminary degree. You'd have to go through all of the CPE process, which takes a couple of years. And then you go in front of the board and maybe, maybe not get in. And and the CPE, I can't, can I do that while I'm in seminary or do I have to wait till I graduate from seminary and then I do those hours? Usually seminarians will take CPE in the summer and they'll take like one unit of it. Um, it's difficult to be in seminary and do CPE full time, both of them. It's, it's almost impossible to do that. Some people will take a year off from seminary because they're looking for a break and they want to get into chaplaincy. And a lot of times seminaries and chaplaincy just don't go hand in hand. Um, but I mean, it's. It, it takes a while for people to, to get to that point where they, they're able to actually work and do chaplaincy training. So the, the CPE, those, those hours, do you get paid? Do you get paid for those hours? That's volunteer? It, depend, it depends on the program. Um, if you're a resident, if you're in a residency program, um, those residents will get paid, but they also have to pay tuition to whatever institution um, is accredited for the CPE program. So, so it's a long, expensive process. It is. Did you take it's on a, ridiculous? Of, did you take on ridiculous debt? I didn't have to take on any debt. I actually, I worked my tail full time. I was one of those people that worked full time and went to seminary at the same time, and I went to CPE full time, and I became a resident at VCU. So fortunately, that residency was paid, but it doesn't pay too much. You still have to pay tuition. So, so, so what, what was the job that you were doing while you were doing all that? <laughs> Man, I was doing all kinds of things. Uh, let's see here. Oh, I was working it sounds at like home. it was something oh. dirty. It sounds like it was something deep. Well, no, I mean, I was, I was actually, so this is the thing. I'm an opportunist, right? A lot of people, when they're struggling with things, I mean, it, it's hard, but the way I deal with my anxieties is to say, okay, where's my opportunity? So for instance, I, I was working at Home Depot as a part-time job on weekends or something, but I was also working as a professional counselor. So at nighttime or, or earlier during the day, I would go and see other clients that I had to take care of. Uh, in addition to that, I actually spent one year living in a monastery in order to get my costs down. So I was actually doing CPE while living in a monastery, you know, my my off time getting trained as a chaplain, because this is the most important. Uh, immersive experience I could think of and I had to get costs down so those were my options so what kind of sem what kind of what kind of monastery did you live in so it's an urban monastery it's a place called Richmond Hill which is actually right down and up the hill from where I work right now at the hospital and Richmond Hill was it was the best thing in preparing me for chaplaincy, to tell you the truth, because my seminary training, of course, that was indoctrination and you're being conditioned. But Richmond Hill was an ecumenical community, and I was the one person that wasn't a Christian there, but I lived by Christian ideals because for me it was important. If I was going to take this, this route, I had to actually be in the environment that all of the people that were my competition, my peers, and my cohorts, what they were doing. So I took it in as a mission, and I lived at this monastery monastery for a year and I learned so much, but I had to take that and then 
kind of do my own thing with it. I know. But I it was, was a tremendous I, experience. I always hate it when people say I, I live by Christian values because I go like, and what were those? And they go like, oh, we were loving each other and forgiving each other and serving the poor. And I'm like, those aren't Christian values. Those yeah. are human values, you know, like they, they had a Christian, right. they, they, they had a Christian veneer, but like, right. Those are my values. Those are your values. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so, so, but, but you were definitely living according to like Christian, it was Christian symbology, Christian language, Christian everything. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and I really struggled and I had to learn what that meant to me, you know, while not, while not looking at the divine as my source, you know, looking at the, the human individual as the source for the practice. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you did all that at what, I mean, when you went to seminary, I'm remembering, you told me this a long time ago, like, I'm thinking when you went to seminary, you weren't yet knowing you were going to be a chaplain. Nope. No, you were thinking you were going to be pastor? So no. I initially, I, I had no idea. I actually wanted to go nonprofit, but I, I thought that, so what, since I grew up in the Presbyterian church, it was always the church that was the one where I felt community and I wanted to get into more community organizing and do different things. And uh -huh. I know a lot of people went that route, but it was, it wasn't until I got there that I was like, I don't think this is gonna, gonna happen. But I was so deep in it already. I had to finish seminary and, and, and being at the monastery, I discovered chaplaincy and I was like, Oh, I need to do this. So, so I, like, I just sent one of my students well, I, sh I shouldn't say I sent. That sounds so paternalistic. Like I told her where to go and she went. Like one of my brilliant students got herself into Harvard Divinity School. All right. Mm. And she's going to Harvard Divinity School for the next three years. Um, and uh, but she's going as an openly humanist person. Yes. And, 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 and she's going to be taking classes all over Harvard, MIT, all over the place that are that she's sort of they're designing a program that's really aimed at helping her understand her own tradition and and you know and she's like i'm sort of making up you know even straight up humanism isn't fully her tradition because like the old school you know humanist manifesto humanism she grew up in like usc secular student fellowship like it, it was all about ministry and outreach and you know caring for the needs of each other and building a community and fighting for social justice and not that that's not the other humanism too, but like she, she's really sort of, I don't want to say making it up as she goes, but she's going to get a chance to really learn about what it means to be a humanist caregiver and a humanist community builder in that setting. You did not have that opportunity. No, you, no. you went to some old Presbyterian seminary and they were teaching about Jesus and church. Mm -hmm. So where did you like, do you feel like you ever got a humanist education? Like, have you read anything like, like what has shaped your humanist practice and your chaplaincy practice? You know, becoming a part of the, the humanist community that's down here and just practicing with them. You know, I, you know, you look at like Roy Speckhardt's book, uh, uh, the, uh, what is his Roy's book? Um, uh, changing the world through humanism. Um, and I kind of got those kind of things. Um, but also I started looking on the uh, the Humanist Institute where they have a curriculum where you can actually look and study and read different things. And I kind of cheated because I'm exposed to all kinds of different things. Well, so you would be surprised what you can find in a seminary library. And it just so happened that the library on Union Presbyterian Seminary's campus is phenomenal and they have all kinds of resources. So I really poured into that stuff uh, myself. So when I was going through classes, I decided that I want to do things from a humanist perspective, which you can understand really challenge some of the Old Testament, New Testament uh, professors um, tremendously. But that it, it was crazy because actually the pressure of being in that training ground, um, but also me just being who I am and being out there in the community and being interested in all kind of other things. And a little bit of my, I'm going to find a way to get this information, <laughs> even if it, it costs me. Um, that's what helped me become humanist. Um, and then obviously when I started in chaplaincy, I started getting into some other things, reading some of Jared Diamond stuff, uh, even some Dawkins stuff. And I, I've always been very scientific and just naturally my way of thinking forced me to think as a humanist rather than uh, a Presbyterian theologian. I've always struggled to think theologically anyway. Um, but that's really 
how it all happened. And it was just confirmed later when I started getting together with more humanists. So, do, I mean, do you have a humanist community down there that you hang out with? Yeah, we have Saved by Science, the Richmond area humanists. Um, we we kind of hang out from time to time. We actually get together on, on Sundays because, you know, a lot of folks, um, we will get together at a, a Unitarian church. Um, so that's why we get together there, because the, obviously the lights are already on, the doors are already open and different things like that. Um, but, yeah, we're starting to to do some things. It's It's not as... It doesn't have the cohesion that a lot of faith communities, like, uh, say, maybe a church or something has, but it's starting to grow. It's starting yeah. to get a little bigger now. Well, you know, that, that's more my thing. I mean, like, you're, you're, you're like this, this, you're solo. I mean, like, you don't, when you walk into that hospital room, you don't want to represent the Saved by Science. You don't want to represent anybody. You just want to be, um, not a blank slate, but you want to be available and you, 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 you you're not you're not in there to to sell anything, right? It, this is re, it's really not a way of you communicating humanism. It's a way of you living out your commitment to making other people's lives better. Right. The way I move does the humanist stuff for me. Right. I, I live my life as a humanist, and that example is what what does it. I don't need to tell anybody or broadcast or anything. Yeah. 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 That that. I mean, it's funny. That sound, doesn't that sound like some of our old evangelical days? Like, you know, <laughs> you know what, what was the old St. Francis, you know, you know, preach the gospel at all times and sometimes use words. And, you know, it sounds like you're like, preach humanism at all times and sometimes use words. But, you know, most of the time you don't need to. Uh, uh-huh. And I think there's some, you know, I, I guess. So a lot of people, you know, you're in a moment every day that a lot of people are only in one time in their life. Right. That moment when they say, you're going to die. Or when they say, your child just died or is going to die or your father's going to die or your mother's going to die. And, and death becomes real. And sometimes it's in, sometimes the person's far too young. Um, and, 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 and people often ask me, like, what do you say in that situation? Um, what, what, what perspective do you have to offer someone? Do, do, do you have kind of like, I know you, I know it's different in every, in every situation, but do you have like a, a general perspective where you go like, how it, it, how would you comfort yourself? Like what is, what, what for you is the comfort, the consolation that you have to offer somebody at the end of their life? Once again, just shutting up, you know, people, a lot of times think that they have to have something to say. And, you know, when you struggle with things, especially things that aren't supposed to happen, like young people dying, for instance, it's not supposed to happen like that. Right. You just shut up and you go, you know, you allow them to express themselves. You know, sometimes I go in there and I want to just tell them the truth, you know, just tell them, hey, it's not supposed to happen like this. But in those moments, you know, we've done enough talking, you know. So when there's. There's no more talking. You just let them talk. You let them express themselves, you know? So if they express themselves saying, you know, I understand what's happening here and we're going to go ahead and, and hold these moments close to us, then that's what you allow them to say. And that's what you hold on to. And then that's the kind of conversation that you have. But if they ha- say that, you know, I can't accept this, I need to hold on to something, then that's when you say, you know what, I'll be there with you so that we can find that hope together. And, 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 and then do you ask questions? Then do you sort of say like, tell me where you come from? Tell me where hope has been for you in the past? Um, kind of, that's, that's kind of how it goes. Definitely. As far as the hope, you know, you definitely want to help them draw upon the things that, that they go to, especially if they're, if they're healthy, you try to identify those healthy things. Yeah. So, so if you, if I called you and said, man, my sister, she just got that diagnosis. Like, and I'm going to see her tomorrow. I thought I'm going to see her at her house or at the hospital. Like she just found this bad news. What would be your advice to me? Like what, just as a, like, what would you say? Like, would you say just shut up? Don't say anything. 
No, you know, it's it's hard enough to hear that news if you're a patient because you're the one dying. So you really need some. If she specifically requested you, it's probably because you're going to be the person that's going to have to speak for her. And that's what we call a medical decision maker, medical power of attorney, legal next to kin stuff. Um, so I'd say, hey, go ask any questions that you you don't understand. OK, make sure you're asking questions and being present. But most importantly, Talk to your sister, identify what her values are, find out what she wants in that moment so that no matter what, you can speak for her, you can be her advocate, and you can be there by her side. And that's a hard thing to do because you may not want to do the same thing that she wants, but that's your duty if she's requested that. And if you can't do that, then you really need to talk with her to help find you know, some support that that can so 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 in a sense and i'm just saying like she might just come and say man come over and talk to me man i'm just i'm just upset this thing happened and i guess what you're saying is is don't try to be a mind reader like actual like like that's what my wife always says to me don't try to be a mind reader like it's okay to ask and say like i'm here but i don't really know like do you what do you how can i be helpful like right. I, I can sit quietly you know or i can you know like do you need me mm-hmm. to get you something or or, or, or do you need me to, I can tell you how I'm feeling if that's what you want to hear. Like, like do you, because sometimes, you know, I was talking to a guy the other day and he said that this heart, when his father died, he said, my father died. He said, all these people came by, all these Christian people came by because he was a Christian at the time. And he said, they told me all these comforting words about how, you know, a, my father was in a better place and this and that. And he said, I, it was all just horrible, horrible. And he said, I had this one atheist friend. He showed up. And he just said to me, oh, man, that's horrible. That's the worst thing I've ever heard of. I can't believe it. This is terrible. This is, oh, man, this is awful. I'm so sorry. This is so unfair. And he said, 30 years later, that's the only person I remember. Like, that helped me. It helped me for him to articulate, this sucks. And I, I, like, I just needed somebody to climb in with me and say, yeah, this does suck. And he said, nobody was, everyone was trying to fix it. And I just needed somebody to be in it with me. Mm-hmm. And, and so sometimes I feel like that's the one thing I do feel comfortable articulating is coming in and going like, wow, I hate this. I'm so sorry this is happening. This is so terrible. And I feel like that's almost never the wrong thing to say. You know, if they can't say it, but it's clearly there, sometimes you have to, be the one to put it out there so that then they can have the strength to express themselves, even if they disagree with you, because at least you're giving them the option. If everybody else is kind of agreeing, saying this stuff, it it can make someone feel obligated to go with them. But being that voice of, of truth, I mean, that can open up the doors for them to, to say and feel anything that's there at the moment. Yeah, even if they push back in to go, like, no, 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 this isn't bad. This is God's Absolutely. will. And you go like, okay. Absolutely, because then that gives you the chance to say, well, you know, what do you understand God's will to be? Yeah. How do you think this works? Yeah. Right. I, it's funny. I was, with a, I was with this guy. Have you ever heard of Brian McLaren? Yeah. So I just did this seminar with Brian at this festival called the Wild Goose Festival. Mm-hmm. And it was funny because I was like, man, you would like, I thought of you because we had talked before. I was like, man... You should come, you should be at this festival. This would have been, it was very progressive, but it was a place where there was like this, it was like this sort of title zone where like, I was there secular and they wanted me there secular because, because there are, there are a lot of people there that are on the fence or figuring it out and sort of not. And they're like, we want them to see that there's life on the other side of faith. Right. But Brian and I did this session together about how to come out to people when, when you believe differently than them, how to tell someone in your family, like, they're a Trump person and you're not a Trump person, you know, how, or, 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 or they're a Christian and you, and you've realized you're not a Christian or all your family's atheist. And from Brian's case, he's like, maybe you just converted to, you know, Catholicism. And you're like, how do I tell them? And, and so in the midst of thing, like I, I did this kind of cool thing. I told my story and Brian, then it, it wasn't cool till Brian said, Oh, what I hear you saying is, is that you started the conversation with your parents by, by, with, with gratitude, where you thank them for all the things that you learned in church and all the things that you learned from them as Christian. And then you, you didn't proclaim your secularity, but you, you confessed it. You're like, I can't believe in God anymore. So it was like, it was like first it was, it was gratitude, then it was confession. 
And then it was reassurance. Then you said to them, but like, just so you know, like, I'm still going to love young people. I'm still committed to social justice. Like, I still share all the, you know, I'm going to, like, I'm I'm, I'm committed to making the most of my life in a really positive way. So they didn't think that you were going to go out and like, you know, become a drug dealer and, you know, a rapist, Um, which some Christian people do think that might happen to you when you give up Jesus. Right. And so he, he, I mean, I thought that was brilliant. He just brought it down to like those three things. But then he said this, he said, he said, but a lot of times you're going to be in a situation like in a hospital room where somebody's going to say something on the spot. You're not prepared. You didn't prepare for this confrontation. And somebody's going to say something that is so you, you can't stand and you don't want to nod your head and act, you don't want to say nothing because that's like be complicit in a racist statement or in a, you know, in a stu- you know, oh, Jesus must have just wanted this baby to die so that he could have another angel. And you're just like, but he's like, but on the, but by the same token, it's not a situation where you can, where you feel comfortable going like, well, wait a second, that's actually not true. And the Bible is balderdash and your faith is st- silly. He's like. And he said, you know what? He said, it's really helpful if you're bald. But he said, even if you're not bald, I have the same advice for you. He said, take your right hand, smack it on top of your head, and just say, wow, I see that very differently. He said, he said you don't need to say what you see differently. Just say, wow, I see that really differently. And he said, almost invariably, somebody will say to you, what do you mean? How do you see it? And then he said, the, th- the second thing to say is say, you know what? I don't think this is the time. I'm not ready to have that conversation right now. If you want later on, we could talk about it. Like if you want, we could have coffee or I could come back. Now isn't the time. But he said, sometimes that gets you. It, it means that you don't walk out of the hospital room feeling like a liar or a sellout, but you also don't walk out having been a jerk. And, and, and creating a conflict. And, and, you know, I thought that was just brilliant. You know, wow, I see that differently. Not judgmental, not you're wrong, not, not that stupid, but just like, wow, I, I see that differently. And it's just a way of getting yourself out of the complicity of the room without necessarily starting a conflict. Mm. See, I see that. Me, I would go another route, you know, and I would... I would see the bait there, but just kind of leave it alone. And then I would turn to the person who uh, was the, the quote unquote patient and say, well, what does that mean to you? You know, I, I, would, oh, look, I, would, I wouldn't too. agree with it or, or I wouldn't agree or disagree. I just, you know, I changed the direction a little bit to, to change the emphasis. I think that, I mean, I think that's a chaplain thing. I, like, it seems to me mm-hmm. if you're in, in the room, you go like, there's one person in this room that is the primary uh primary focal point and so let's let's let everything run through there so that that's brilliant just go like yeah so, so aunt mary just said that w- 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 you know how does that feel to you what does that mean to mm-hmm. you exactly um, and and I, that you know I, I think that sometimes you know brian was talking about like you're at the thanksgiving dinner and somebody goes like i'm just glad trump's throwing all those immigrants out of the country and he's like <laughs> what do you say there you know like you don't believe that but like you don't want to blow up the dinner and he said you know that's where I think when there's no patient involved, that's where you just go like, wow. <laughs> that's, I, that's when I try that technique. Yep. I see that differently. But, but you know, and, and say, we, we can talk about it another time. But, you know, I just, I, you know I, that's crazy. We just, we're just really on different place on that. And then you just like pass the cranberry sauce. Um, <laughs> but I can see where in a hospital room you go like, what I, what I think is not the, it's not the issue here, is it? I'm here to serve. Right. Yeah. I think that, have you found that with a lot of secular people? Like I'm finding that a lot of secular people, they, they feel like they are servants of the truth. And I want to make them, I want to say that the truth, if you really believe the truth, that your truth that you're telling me about life and what matters and what doesn't, what happens after we die, then really you should probably be a servant of the person in front of you. Mm-hmm. That that may, that person is actually more important than the truth in many circumstances. Yeah, I absolutely agree. So, so you you, you once told me you're like you were p- pretty passionate at one point. I mean, you're the chillest guy I know, but like you seem very passionate about the idea of like 
we need to get more openly humanistic people involved in chaplaincy. Can you talk about that for a second? Yeah. So, you know, you kind of alluded to it already. A lot of a lot of people in chaplaincy have already fallen away from their their uh, religious uh, kind of beginnings. Um, and I think that we need more people that are humanists and just open because, you know, the demographic of the country is changing anyway, you know, and when we when we have barriers in, in fields where a lot of people can do a lot of really good things for for folks, I mean, it's only natural that that we would evolve with the times, right? But unfortunately, in chaplaincy, it was, it was kind of like this thing where we're still going to own this. I don't know what it was about. You know, maybe it was because the churches started, you know, um, falling away a little bit and pastors went to different options. But I think that, you know, the time is right because, like I said before, I believe. No, no, I, don't, a, I don't think that's it at all. I think what it was mm -hmm. is churches started a lot of these hospitals. Right. And a lot of them are uh, religious institutions. Absolutely. They're and I, affiliated. And I think if you're a good evangelical, you recognize that in that moment, people mm. are really vulnerable. And so if you're going to try to get a word in there for the gospel, mm -hmm. um, a person, you know, in that in that hour of need that, 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 that there's a lot of desperation there. And so that's a moment when people are looking for perspective. And so I think that that's one of the reasons why people are like, you know what, we should get a minister in there. We should get somebody in there. Um, so I, I mean, so it's no, it's no surprise to me that chaplaincy is dominated by supernaturalists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which, which a lot of times that's the truth. And, and fortunately at VCU health where I work, um, all the chaplains are paid by the institution. So there's none of that religious stuff going on where we're like, Hey, we want you to push our gospel. It's all chaplains meet there and they act as humanists. You know, it's amazing. But even though they have their own faith understanding and belief system and they'll, they'll be endorsed by by some faith group, they're not paid by that faith group to come in there and do that. You know, it's funny because, you know, I had a friend who was a journalist and she used to say, if you want to understand any story, follow the money. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and it sounds like you're sort of like, you know what? Who pays a chaplain matters. It does. Yeah. Absolutely does. Yeah. So, so you say you're thinking like we need more overtly humanist chaplains, not because it'll change so much what happens in the hospital room, because it sounds like most of the chaplains are operating as de facto humanists anyway when they walk in that door. Mm -hmm. But 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 simply because you think that humanists would be particularly well suited to that job. Absolutely. I mean, the reality is chaplaincy changes people. It changes them into humanists. And the reality is this. If you don't have uh, a faith belief system that is so strict that you can't receive just real life happening, uh, it allows you to do some really good things. And I think that's where humanists excel, because we can go in there and just absorb a situation for whatever it is without pushing the agenda and say, OK, I can work with this. It's, it's hard if you are so strict in your belief that no matter what, you're going to go in there with your agenda. But humanists, we're more open to that because we're more embracing of a wider range of people. Um, but also at the same time, I, I think that humanists can be on every block, like I said. And, and if we are representative of the people, we also need to have more chaplains that represent that demographic. Yeah. Now, 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 what's your interaction with doctors and nurses? Like, do, I mean, do you feel like you're also a chaplain to them? Absolutely. That, that, in fact, is specifically written into the job description. We are there to provide support for the patients, their families, but also the, the staff members at the hospital, because vicariously through them, we can touch every patient. But I don't have enough time in the day to go see every patient that's on my list. Like you said before, it might be 20, sometimes 40 people on that list alone. So what we try to do is make sure that we're culture changers on whatever units that we're working with so that the doctors have a little bit of chaplain in them, but they also uh, can go to you for support because they're dealing with raw emotion as well. They may work with it a different kind of way, but it does affect them. So the chaplain is going to be there to kind of set that culture and work with everybody who is in the environment. Wow. So that, I, gosh, I, that was such an interviewer statement. Like, wow. But like, I am like, 
that idea of like setting the culture and sort of thinking, hey, a hospital is a place where a lot of shit goes down. Mm -hmm. And you sort of think like, if you're committed to like my little shorthand sometimes that I use for humanism is, you know, a mm -hmm. commitment to pursue loving relationships, right? to pursue, to do work that makes a difference for other people mm -hmm. and, and, and to cultivate a sense of gratitude for the wonder and privilege of consciousness, just like, you know, to, to, to just love nature and, and to grasp it. Because the more you understand about the world, the more grateful you, you will be for like the privilege of being in it. Right. Like, if that's humanism, like, there's a part of me that goes, there are a lot of places, like when I was at USC, there are a lot of places where that's not the value system that everybody's pursuing. Like, some people are like, no, nah, it's about it's about money and prestige, you know, it's about winning, um, you know, other places, you know, it's about power or it's about, and so it feels to me like what you're saying is like a lot of times at a hospital, the culture might not necessarily be about helping people develop loving relationships. It, it might be about like preserving life at all cost, or it might be about producing profit or minimizing cost. Like, and so the idea of like that if you care about humanistic values, you might want to mm. might want to find a way to be a part of a hospital community so that you could shape those like so that you could try to shape the culture so that that hospital better reflected the best of humanity. What goes on in the hospital permanently affects your life. So it's the perfect place to go because people go there. There, there are no options. Like you said before, it's kind of a catch-all place where is once things hit the absolute worst levels, that's where you end up. So of course, naturally, that is you know ground zero for doing the life-changing kind of work. So yeah, I, I'd say everybody needs to at some level be involved at the hospital. Okay, now here's a weird thing. Every time I ever took a kid or took a person in my neighborhood to the emergency room. I would sit there in the emergency, look around, and go like, where the hell is the chaplain here? There was never a chaplain in the emergency room, right? Like, and that was where all the ghetto crazy was going on and everything. And I, was, I would always think to myself, man, somebody ought to be the chaplain in the, why is no, why are there no chaplains in the emergency room? You know, that's, that's crazy because I work in a level one trauma center. And it probably depends on the trauma level uh, center that you're working with. But we're level one, which means we are at the highest acuity for crazy stuff happening. Like in the middle of the city, this is where everything is terrible. And we have chaplains in the emergency room because that's just the reality that we got to deal with. You know, I did a pilot program to see, you know, what would be the effects of having a chaplain in there. And the reality is it, it was hard to see all the people that would come in an emergency room because you just never know. You never know who needs it the most unless it's a trauma. But the reality is the chaplain in the emergency room primarily, like we were just talking about a couple of minutes before, will work with the staff because they're the ones that feel all the stress because oh. in, emergent, in, in emergency, it's a different kind of thing. You're dealing with okay, this is where the crap happens. And it's like, we need to hurry up and figure out where in the hospital we're going to send them. So they don't even have time to see a chaplain. So they're like, okay, the chaplain, therefore, will work with the staff. But if we can, usually if somebody needs to talk to family members or just kind of be a communicator among staff because they're already stressed out, they'll call a chaplain down that, that covers what we call the duty pager. It's more like the triage chaplain. And that chaplain will come down if there isn't already a chaplain covering the emergency room. Because you know, I've often thought as a, as a humanist, like, yeah, even forget the in, in the emergency room, just the waiting room. Like, like, mm -hmm. if, I, I feel like as a human being, I mean, if anybody's li anybody listens to me, you know, mm -hmm. like, I would say, like, if you can't figure out some way to make an, a positive impact on the world, get a book, get a paperback, and just go down to the emergency room and just sit in there for three hours with your book. And just keep looking around and see if there's anybody that might, you think might want you to go get them a Coke or might want you to just say, how you doing? Or man, it's hot out today. And just see if anybody wants to engage you. Because every emergency room I've ever been in, there were people there that were in a lot of fear and a lot of pain. And, and a lot of times there just wasn't anybody there for them to be with. Mm -hmm. So I don't even think you need to be a professional. If you just showed up, there's need. There's human, there's human drama. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, bro, I, 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 I see you there. I know you just got off work. 
and, and, and the people who listen to the podcast cannot see that you're talking to me on Skype, shirtless, <laughs> looking beautiful, all tatted up. Hey, people have no idea what's underneath the chaplain gear. They don't. All these beautiful tattoos all over you. Um, and so, you know, I'm just looking at you. I'm going like, man, that guy probably needs to go have some dinner. Yeah. So, so I'm going to let yeah, you go. Good. I'm going to let you go have some dinner. But I, I think this will be a good podcast for people to listen to because I really want to get across. Like I, when you say the six year thing, I don't think a lot of our people are going to go seminary. You know, most of the people who listen to this podcast are, are, are way beyond that. Um, right. I'm going to start talking to some young people. Right. I'm going to start talking to some young people about that kind of lifestyle. Mm -hmm. But I really believe that there's a lot of transferables about this business of like not being married to your own agenda. Right. And so I just really appreciate you sharing it. Um, and I just, you know, I, like I appreciate what you do, man. I just really, I mean, I, 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 I don't know if people thank a chaplain too much or too little. You know, like, like I feel like I get thanked way too much relative to what I do. People always act like I just did the most amazing thing. And I was like, you know, like I, I, I wrote an email recommendation for you. It's not the end of the world. Right. Um, but I, I sense that maybe chaplains don't get thanked enough. You know, people thank us in their actions, you know, and we, we have this, this, this kind of discussion in chaplaincy where we, we say we know people are dealing with some stuff when they're, they're interacting with us. And they may not remember our names, but they remember that we were present. You know, and for us, it's just an honor to be there for people in the most critical times of their lives. And, and we know that they they thank us for that because we're in those moments and we're just we're able to receive them. Well, you know, they can say it with their actions. I'll say it with my words. I'm thankful. I appreciate you, man. And uh, I'll catch up to you. I'll catch up to you soon. Thank you, brother. All right, baby. See you later. Peace. All right, so that was my conversation with Jason Callahan, who is truly one of my heroes, because that is a guy who has put in the time, he's put in the work, he's practicing, he's getting better and better at pumping out a particularly important kind of goodness. And the truth of the matter is, is that none of us are as good at this stuff as we can be, as we will be, if we keep practicing. So, uh... Yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not going to say much more because that was a long conversation. I even got a short Ingersoll quote for you. I, 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 I had a long one and I, I discarded it. Got a short one for you, but I think it's a good one. Here you go. From Robert Ingersoll. A gem. It is a fault common to all of us, this habit of attacking motives. And whenever we see a man or woman do something which is great and praiseworthy, let us talk about the act itself and not go into a speculation or an attack upon the motive which prompted the act. Attack what a person actually does. Maybe what he should have said is attack or defend what a person actually does because there's a time for both. But I love it. More than a hundred years ago, um, Ingersoll figured out that we're not going to get very far in our discourse if we go after people's motives. We'd be better off talking about what they do and looking at what we do. All right, enough. See ya next time on Humanize Me. For more information about the work of Bart Campolo, please visit bartcampolo.org. <laughs>